Chapter 16 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mawat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 16 La Belle Clementine. Part 1 La Belle Clementine. That was the only name by which she was known when she stood before the French tribunal, the only name by which she is designated on the records of the criminal court of Paris. The French law makes a lenient provision by which a culprit's family is spared undeserved shame, and thus the real name of La Belle Clementine throughout her trial was kept a profound secret. Clementine belonged to one of those noble but decayed families whose exclusiveness had not survived its wealth. It was not difficult to obtain admission into the salons which the degenerate nobility frequented. The handsome, daring, dashing Chevalier de la Rochefort found an easy entree, and nobody troubled himself about Chevalier's antecedents. La Belle Clementine had hardly completed her seventeenth year when they met. De La Rochefort was quickly and genuinely enamoured of the peerless beauty, and Clementine was too impassionate, imaginative, ardent, not to be captivated in turn. Her beauty was all the more striking because wholly unlike the French type. Those changeful eyes, the positive color of which might have been gray, but now appears blue, now violet, now hazel, and now black, that luxuriant hair, revealing a variety of tints, bright chestnut near the roots, and the hue of satiny straw towards the ends, the finely shaped nostrils that expand when the eye dilates, the transparent skin that shows the delicate veins beneath, betrays the faintest blush of emotion, and renders parlor more marble-like when the blood retreats. These were eloquent signs of the temperament most dangerous to womanhood before its ears are opened to the heaven-commissioned monitor within. For the Chevalier de la Rochefort to have offered himself openly as a suitor to Clementine would have entailed the necessity of making known his birth, his means of livelihood, his actual position, and there were very good reasons why these should remain enveloped in mystery. Singular as it may seem, vanity, and perhaps a touch of latent honesty, prompted him to test the depth of Clementine's infatuation, and the struggle of his own power by thrilling her ears with the romantic narrative of his lawless youth, the history of daring exploits, to which the administrators of justice would have given a somewhat sterner name. Did Clementine shrink from the man who stood before her an avowed criminal? Alas, it is as sad as true that a large class of women are subject to a sort of demoniacal possession which takes the form of frantic admiration for a villain hero. The awe, dread, and wonder, and with which they regard these fascinating demi-devils, 
only strengthened the unreasoning passion. Clementine, when she heard from her own lover's lips the story of his unworthiness, was more madly in love with him than before. She was ready to fly with him, to cling to him, to share his dangers and be covered with his shame, to risk life itself by his side. A secret union in France was out of the question for one who had not reached her majority. They fled to England, where the marriage was duly solemnized, returned to Paris, and lived in seclusion, undiscovered by her relatives. Three years after, La Belle Clementine became the wife of Victorien la Victorieux, as he was styled by the band of ruffians whom he ruled with a rod of iron, and who idolized him for his bravery. A robbery was committed on the premises of a wealthy miser, followed by a murder, a murder which was supposed to have been unintentional and perpetrated in self-defense. The offenders were traced to the abode of their chief. Victorien and his band were arrested, and with them La Belle Clementine. The trial lasted many days, and though it took place with closed doors, very little influence was needed to obtain admission, and the court was thronged. Clementine's remarkable beauty, her youth, her apparent unsophistication, and her passionate attempts to shield her husband moved even her judges to compassion. Victorien and several of his comrades were found guilty of murder and sentenced to the guillotine. La Belle Clementine and the others were condemned to imprisonment for life. Clementine was thrown into a state of frenzy by the sentence passed upon her husband, and piteously implored to be allowed to share his fate. Since the judges thought her guilty, let the guillotine be her doom also. The sentence they had passed on her was no punishment, for if Victorien died, the whole world would be but one vast solitary prison-house which their sentence could not render more desolate. Her pathetic appeal was not one to be granted, but it heightened the agitation visible throughout the court. That emotion had in one instance been so violent that when the jury pronounced the verdict of guilty, a young man fell to the ground and was borne forth insensible. That night, de la Rochefort swallowed an acid which he had himself prepared by steeping a sou in vinegar, and was found dead in his cell. When the tidings were communicated to Clementine, they seemed to benumb her intellect. She sank into a state of physical and mental prostration, and was hardly conscious of her removal to the Maison Centrale at Fontevraud. An attack of brain fever ensued, and when she rallied, her body alone appeared to have returned to life. Her soul remained afar off. Happily, she found a pitying friend in the kindly physician of the prison. He advised her to petition to be sent to Cayenne, where she would at least have more freedom, be allowed to breathe the fresh air, and have duties assigned her which would help to divert her thoughts from brooding over the miserable past and dreary future. 
Clementine, grateful for any change and believing that none could be for the worse, made the application. The request was granted without difficulty, and the stricken, doomed, desolate girl made a tedious voyage to the French penal settlement in South America, which is a less intolerable home to the convict than the prisons of France. On the small, arid, sun-scorched island of Cayenne, Clementine thought to pass the remainder of her days. Part 2 We have already mentioned that when La Belle Clementine was pronounced guilty, there was one person among the sympathizing crowd so strongly moved that he fell prostrate and unconscious. It was the Vicomte Eugène de Rosier, a youth of eighteen. Every day, while the trial lasted, he had presented himself at the doors long before they were opened, and, being the first to enter, he always made his way to the same seat, one where he could face the prisoners at the bar. His agitation when La Belle Clementine appeared in the dock was so often uncontrollable that it drew the eyes of the court upon him. When appearances seemed to criminate her, he clenched his hands, gasped for breath, and sometimes tore open his vest as if he were stifling. His eager eyes never turned from her face, and now and then it seemed as though magnetically they drew her eyes to look his way. In leaving the court, he was often heard asserting his firm belief in her innocence, quoting circumstances which proved that she could not be guilty, and vehemently protesting that her only crime consisted in loving too faithfully and too blindly a villain. Friends inquired if the young Viscount knew La Belle Clementine personally. Know her? Yes, no, he answered incoherently. That is, he knew her, for who could listen to all those minute details of her life and feel that he did not know her? Who could look upon her wondrously beautiful countenance until it became so familiar that it filled his mental vision night and day and say that he did not know her? But except before that dreadful tribunal, they had never met. He had never addressed one word to her, and yet he was sure she knew of his sympathy, his devotion, his prayers that she might be proved innocent. Their eyes had met. She had thanked him by a grateful look, had told him of her innocence by the indignant flush that mantled her cheek when she was accused. No jury would dare to commit such a wrong as to find a verdict of guilty against her. When the last day of the trial came, when he discovered his error and heard that appalling word pronounced, the young vicomte started from his seat, trembling and deadly pale. He strove to speak, but the words into a hoarse cry, which broke the solemn stillness that followed the verdict. Then came the sound of a fall, and all eyes, even those of Clementine, the convicted, were turned upon the youth, whom the gendarmes carried insensible from the court. When he recovered from his swoon, the young vicomte raved wildly against the injustice of the law, declared that he would see Clementine again, would give her the assurance that there was one who would move heaven and earth to get her sentence revoked or enable her to escape. 
His friends only laughed at his vague threats, and his parents secretly remarked how well enthusiasm became him, how his eyes glittered with an unwanted light, what a torrent of eloquence burst from his lips. But suddenly Eugene disappeared. He made no preparations, left no letter, had not supplied himself with money, and his purse was usually empty. Agonized by terrible fears, his father offered a large reward for his discovery, and he was soon traced by the police. On the road to Fontainebleau, they found an exhausted, half-starved youth, whose college dress betrayed him. He had wandered three or four days and nights without food or shelter, determined to reach the Maison Centrale and to see Clementine. He had planned various extravagant modes of obtaining an interview, and he was within sight of the walls of the city when his overtaxed strength abandoned him, and he sank by the wayside, unable to drag himself a step farther. In spite of his pathetic entreaties to be allowed to complete his journey, he was reconducted to his home. It was only too evident that his mind had become seriously unsettled by what the French physicians call the idée fixée. For years he was kept under surveillance, first of a tutor, then of a constant companion. Notwithstanding his mental infirmity, he distinguished himself at college. He also excelled in fencing, boxing, running, leaping. He was a daring equestrian and one of the most skillful swordsmen in Paris. He cultivated all gymnastic exercises with singular perseverance, as though he had some hidden object in view, and expected an hour would come when he would fight against fearful odds, or leap the most formidable barriers, make his escape, and fly unimpeded by heavy burdens. His father died, leaving the son but a small patrimony with his title. At last, the irritating watchfulness which had thrown a restraint over Eugene's actions was relaxed. He had always delighted to exhibit his strength of muscle. He suddenly invented a new mode for its display at the jockey club, of which he was a member, by bending a napoleon between his finger and thumb. Gold became wax in his iron grip. This feat he performed many times and after bending the coin, always presenting it to one of the wondering lookers-on, and receiving another Napoleon in exchange. A young man from Bordeaux, who was making his first trip to Paris, was so much struck by the ease with which Count de Rosier folded up these coins that he frequently desired him to repeat the experiment, always securing the bent coins as trophies and giving others in exchange. It chanced, after a time, that the young Bordelais fell short of money, and took the little stock of bent napoleons which he kept as curiosities to the money-changers. The information which he received on presenting them caused him to rush to the club in a state of fury. There he found the Count sitting in his usual seat, in an attitude which had lately become habitual to him, that of a man who was waiting waiting for someone or something, always waiting. 
His face brightened strangely as he saw the flushed and enraged countenance of the Bordelaise, and grew brighter still when the young man planted himself in front of the Count and requested the gentleman present to bear witness that every Napoleon which the Count de Rosier had bent with such marvelous facility in exchange for which he had received good money was counterfeit. The Count rose, bowed courteously, and replied with an air of self-congratulation, You are right, sir. They are counterfeit coins, every one of them. I freely admit the fact. He spoke in a tone of triumph. Sir, exclaimed his exasperated accuser, do you know that it is a crime for which I shall bring you to justice? You are bound to do so, sir, replied the Count complacently. Do you suppose that I am jesting, that you take it so coolly? returned the Bordelaise. Are you aware that you probably will be transported? Yes, to Cayenne. That is all I ask. Heaven knows I have done enough to be sent there, but I have been so unfortunate. Nobody would ever find me out. The gentleman, who formed a circle around de Rosier, looked at each other aghast. Seeing that no one moved, he asked indignantly, Why am I not arrested? Have I not admitted that the coins were false? At this crisis, an elderly gentleman suggested that the Count should be locked in a room where he then was, and begged the other members of the club to withdraw to an adjoining apartment. When they were assembled there, he strenuously advised that before sending for the officers of justice, Dr. Blanche, the celebrated physician for the insane, should be summoned. The Count sat waiting, with an air of eager expectation which had grown so familiar to his features. But when the door opened and he turned to welcome an officer, he encountered a physician. After a brief interview, Dr. Blanche informed the members of the club that the unfortunate Count was undoubtedly laboring under monomania and that his fixed determination to behold and succor a being who had made an indelible impression on his youthful imagination would cause him to commit any act of madness. He added that there was but one chance of cure, a faint one perhaps, but still chance, and that lay in the gratification of the ardent desire which he had cherished for full twenty years. The Count fancied that beholding la belle clementine he would see the young and beautiful woman whose image was ever present to his eyes but twenty years had elapsed clementine must now be forty time toil exposure to a tropical sun and the wretched existence she must have led had doubtless destroyed her personal charms the presence of the real being would dethrone the ideal and dissipate the Count's infatuation. The benevolent doctor concluded by saying that if the members of the club would lend him their aid in taking steps to render this voyage to Cayenne feasible, it might be the means of restoring to reason an unfortunate gentleman whom they had all hitherto esteemed. Not a man present withheld his consent, and the generous young Bordelaise 
was one of the most zealous in discussing the best method to be adopted, and afterwards in carrying into execution the plans agreed upon. Part 3 Clementine, by the time she reached Cayenne, was comparatively restored to physical health. She seldom spoke, and never murmured. In a state of stolid abstraction, she went mechanically through the labors assigned her, labors for which those small, delicately molded hands that bore witness to her gentle blood were how unfitted. She was never roused from her apathy, save by the voice of the priest whose duty it was to visit the convicts. She never seemed to experience the faintest emotion, either of pain or pleasure, except when she was assembled with her unfortunate companions to listen to his exhortations, and then it was only the expression of unutterable anguish upon her pallid countenance that betrayed her mental agony. As the years passed on, little by little, a holy calm, full of earnest endeavor, took the place of her apathetic tranquillity. No stranger who looked into those serenely thoughtful eyes could have believed that hers was an existence without earthly hope, that she was a convict for life. Gradually more liberty was accorded her. She was permitted to nurse the sick, and it was soon found that she ministered to them with a singular skill and tenderness. She also invinced a marvelous power to comfort those whom a sentence as severe as her own had driven to reckless despair. She induced them to accept the fate which was inevitable, and turn their thoughts to that life which was full of hope, even to such as they. Often the most degraded and ungovernable listened to her pleading voice, and their blasphemies and lamentations melted into prayers. She always spoke of herself as one as guilty as they, and this self-accusation seemed all the stronger from the fact that the most criminal of her companions were ever striving to prove their innocence and the injustice of their sentence. From time to time, reports sent from the penal colony to the French government set forth the piety and virtue and untiring zeal of Clementine. But her sad story almost passed out of the minds of those who now heard these accounts. It would be tedious to enter into the full particulars of the movement which resulted in the embarkation of Count Eugène de Rosier and a young physician selected by Dr. Blanche for Cayenne. Eugène betrayed no symptoms of derangement during the passage, except indeed in the enthusiasm which, which he over and over again described to his companion the eloquent face, the rapid transitions of expression, the great eyes of changing hue, the hair of mingled tints, so luxuriant in its thick waves and rich curls, the fragile, graceful form, the lofty bearing, the picturesque attire of La Belle Clementine. He would know her anywhere, he affirmed, in any garb, and a voice within told him that she, too, would instantly recognize him. As they neared the port, he gave way to a wild burst of joy, and his impatience became so great that Dr. Jouvet placed his arm in that of the, the patient and grasped him firmly, fearing that he might plunge into the waves and endeavor to swim to the shore, 
for he was a bold and experienced swimmer. They were safely landed at last, and without delay sought the residence of the governor, were courteously received by him, presented the letter of which Dr. Jouvet was the bearer, and obtained an order for the Count to visit Clementine. On their way to the prison, Eugene was filled with dismay at the dreary appearance of the island, at the sight of the wretched, wasted, diseased convicts whom they encountered. Through what horrors la belle Clementine, so young, so beautiful, must have passed during her twenty years of captivity, twenty years could it be twenty years since he had beheld her last and he could see her face as vividly could remember the sound of her voice and the most trivial incidents of that fearful trial as perfectly as though twenty hours instead of twenty years had elapsed dr jouvet delivered the governor's orders to the head matron and when she retired to summon clementine he also withdrew Eugene was left in the rude, bare apartment appropriated to the matron's use, waiting with beating heart and breath almost suspended. In a few moments the door opened, and he bounded forward impetuously, but stopped. For there stood before him an elderly woman, attired in the uncouth prison dress, her hair smoothed away from her brow and almost entirely concealed beneath an ill-shaped cap her form very far from fragile, her face round and somewhat ruddy, though lightly furrowed, and her whole aspect that of an unpretending, self-possessed matron. The Count paused abruptly, and then said with an apologetic air, I desired to see Clementine, la belle Clementine, he added fervently. The matron's lips did not part even with the faintest sousson of a smile at this familiar appellation. She merely raised her eyes to his face with a look of inquiry. The hue of those steady eyes was not dubious. It was clearly and softly grey. Then bowing calmly, and without a shadow of emotion, she replies, I am Clementine, monsieur. You? The Count was struck speechless, he gazed at her in agonized bewilderment, tried to recognize her features, her form, her expression, her voice, even in vain, in vain. He had never seen, never heard this cold, calm, self-contained matron before. At last he gasped out, And you, you remember me? No, monsieur, was the laconic answer. No? and I was there through it all. I watched you every day. I knew you were innocent, innocent of everything but loving too well. Clementine started and flushed crimson. The gray eyes had grown very dark as they were raised heavenward for an instant and then dropped their lids. Through all those years your face has ever been before my eyes, resumed the Count. Clementine's gaze was bent upon the ground, and, though her lips quivered, she made no answer. Say, at least, that you remember the youth who swooned when you were pronounced guilty. She shuddered visibly, and, in a half-whispered, answered, Yes, I remember. He has dreamed of you night and day. 
has followed you here after all these years to see you, to do something for you. What is there to be done for such a one as I am? replied Clementine hopelessly. The words recalled Eugene to a consciousness of his position. What was there to be done, indeed? How often he had dreamed of La Belle Clementine, pardoned by the Emperor. How often he had fondly thought he would make her his wife. How often he had pictured their lives in some far-off land where they would both be unknown. But this woman, who, though still strikingly handsome, bore no resemblance to the ideal in his mind. Was she the being whom he pined to share the rest of his existence, and for whom no sacrifice could be too great? If the emperor's pardon could be procured, he hesitated and was silent, at a loss how to finish the sentence. I have never dared hope for it, mournfully ejaculated Clementine. But if it could be obtained, there would be a future still before you. There is a future even here. My life is not wholly useless. I thank God for that. She could have hardly made a reply that would have touched Eugene more deeply. There is something so penetrating in the holiness of that resignation which hopes nothing for itself, yet is hopeful and helpful for others. He recognized her voice at last, and it seemed to him more richly melodious than ever. I will seek for your pardon. To what better object could I devote my life? He replied with new ardor. Clementine's eyes dilated with sudden joy until they seemed a brilliant black. She clasped her hands and burst into a fit of convulsive weeping. A jailer entered. The time allowed for the interview had expired. Without being able to utter a single sentence, the convict was compelled to withdraw. The state in which Eugene returned to his companion completely puzzled the physician. It was impossible to tell whether his patient was or was not cured, or what effect the great change in Clementine had wrought upon him. He was so excited, yet so eager to leave the island. A very inferior vessel was to sail for France in a few days. Its accommodations were of the rudest kind, but Eugene insisted on taking passage. He could not brook delay, and during the days that intervened before the ship sailed, he made no attempt to see Clementine again. Conclusion Two years later, the Count was once more on his way to Cayenne. For two years he had labored first to reach then to influence those in power obtained from the emperor the pardon which Eugene was now the bearer. During those two years no symptom of his mental derangement had been apparent. He had something to achieve, and to a mind in the state of his occupation is salvation. Eugene had made every arrangement for Clementine's instant return to France. His thoughtfulness and delicacy were touchingly invinced in his preparations. He had secured a stateroom on board of the vessel in which he sailed for its return passage, and had provided a trunk containing a fitting wardrobe for a lady. Did Eugene remember his frantic impatience to behold Clementine 
when he entered that port two years before he betrayed no such eagerness now he did not even seek the prison the trunk with the two envelopes addressed to clementine were conveyed to her by a trusty messenger one envelope contained her pardon the other the ticket for her passage and a handsome sum of money literally half of all that eugene possessed these gifts she was allowed to believe were part of the emperor's bounty clementine had gained the respect and esteem of the whole colony and her departure was the signal for loud lamentation among the poor wretches whose fate her gentle presence and loving ministry had softened alas they were too sorrowful for themselves to be generous enough to rejoice for her when the day upon which the vessel was to sail arrived she was handed on board by the governor of the island himself she wore the simplest of the dresses found in the well-filled trunk but her beauty so long disguised by the hideous prison garb shone forth in startling splendour it was not the beauty of the clementine of old but a mellow subdued unyouthful yet heart-touching loveliness there was not the faintest trace of the twenty years convict in the dignified gentlewoman with whom the governor shook hands warmly as he withdrew after presenting her to the captain of the vessel the captain himself conducted her to her stateroom as she was walking by his side she started violently and left a sentence unfinished she had caught sight of someone in the distance who lifted his hat eugene as he advanced to greet her experienced a sense of inexplicable gratification when he found her so powerfully agitated that after stammering out a few inarticulate words she retired to her stateroom and did not reappear until the vessel had sailed it was a moonlit evening eugene was pacing the deck in so happy a frame of mind that he wondered at himself when he again beheld la belle clementine he had once more involuntarily restored to her the familiar name by which during the last two years he had ceased to designate her in thought she came toward him as rapidly as the motion of the vessel would permit with an air of mingled timidity and frankness he hastened to offer his arm she hesitated but the lurching of the vessel perforce overcame her unwillingness to accept its support i came to thank you no not to thank you that is impossible you have given me life itself and all the thanks i could utter eugene interrupted her would but pain me do not thank me for purchasing the greatest happiness that was ever mine by an act which is one of simple justice to you the eyes which clementine lifted to his face looked wondrously blue in the moonlight womanly instinct taught her that he would accept their thanks while he refused those of her lips the passage was long for the ship was often becalmed but the days were all too short for eugene he loved la belle clementine as fervently as ever or rather now he loved the true clementine whose mind and heart were daily revealed to him not the creature of his imagination to whom she bore so little resemblance and clementine how was it with her 
alas, how alone could it be? Her early passion for Victorin had been as mad as Eugene's infatuation for her former self, and, like his, was the mere idolatry of an ideal. But this man, who had loved her so many years, this man, who had brought the light of hope, beaming from his face, into her prison house, who had broken her chains, restored her to life, was it wonderful that in his presence she walked in paradise? But in the heart of a true woman, love is united to boundless generosity, and when Eugene asked Clementine to be his wife, though her frame thrilled with joy as her ears drank in the delicious words, she did not betray by the quivering of a muscle her internal ecstasy. She had long known his noble and generous nature would not let him shrink from offering her the safe shelter of his heart, the shield of his name, and she had pondered well over her course. In reply to his prayer, she calmly pictured to him what his future life would inevitably be if she had returned his affection, if, oh holy hypocrite, if she had consented to become his wife, and she painted what her own misery would have been when she felt him dragged down and shut out from fellowship with his equals by his union with a pardoned convict. Greater misery, she added vehemently, than she had endured at Cayenne, aye, far greater. The Count de Rosier, she said, had still a career of honor and usefulness before him. He could never sink back into the gloom which, through an imaginary passion for her and a too observing sympathy with her misfortunes, had darkened his past life. The very memory of the benefits he had conferred upon her must brighten the rest of his existence. As for herself, the good old priest at Cayenne had given her a letter to a holy father in Paris. She had made up her mind to take vows, as the law permitted, and become a sister of charity. She chose this vocation of her own free will, for the emperor's pardon had been accompanied by a gift which secured her independence. She had placed half the son in the hands of her friend, the priest, at Cayenne, to be used in ameliorating the condition of the convicts, the other half would go to the order of the sisters which she joined. Certes, it was not for these purposes that Eugene had impoverished himself by diminishing his own moderate income to half, but there was nothing to be done. Again and again he pressed his suit, ever with the same result. Clementine preserved her secret with such womanly art that Eugene at last believed her true to the villain who had caused her ruin and was compelled to abandon all hope. When they parted at the door of the priest to whom she had been recommended, Eugene uttered one more remonstrance, but this time only against her becoming a sister of charity. The door had just opened to admit her. For the first time she laid her hand in his, then, with a smile that seemed to glorify her face, said, be sure it was for that I was made, and passed from his sight. 
and soon there were sufferers not a few whose grateful voices testified to the truth of these words proclaiming that she had indeed god's license to minister eugene had no mental relapse his cure was effected in a manner somewhat different from the one which dr blanche had planned but it was complete and all the more permanent because the bestowal of half of his fortune upon clementine forced him to seek some bread-yielding occupation now and then as he passes through the streets of paris he encounters a madonna-faced woman wearing the white coif serge dress and large white collar of the sisterhood of charity and though her meek gray eyes are never raised to any other face recognition of a male not being permitted to her order she smiles upon him with grave sweetness and the smile seems to say what should i have been but for you eugene cannot doubt that she is happy and her existence of helpful charity of self-abnegation of peaceful satisfaction has taught him the wisdom of the angels who know that from the deepest woe divinest joy proceeds no human heart until it inly bleeds its life away in pure self-sacrifice can teach to earth the wisdom of the skies end of chapter 16